0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 108. Hello again, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week I bring you a piece of my fiction, and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get right to it. This week's story is the second half of Welcome to the City. This was our first look at the world of Metamore City. The first version of the story was released in 1999, and it aired on podcast in September 2007. What you're hearing now is the audiobook version, produced for the first Metamore City story collection, urban legends. In part one of this story, we met Michael Pirelli, the newest recruit for the Homicide Division at Precinct 9 of the Metamore City Police Department. After meeting his new boss, Captain Joe Montgomery, and learning a bit about the curse of Metamore, Michael was introduced to Detective Lieutenant Catherine Contain, who was formerly in the Homicide Section and now works in Magic Affairs. Kate agreed to give Michael a tour of the city so he can learn what he's getting into. After showing Michael the precinct house, Kate takes Michael down to the morgue, where he meets the head medical examiner, Morgan Drowling. Morgan is a vampire, which Michael finds alarming, since he was always told that the vamps run the mob in the big cities. Kate tells Michael how Morgan was turned by the vamps in an attempt to infiltrate the police department, but she managed to tip off Kate and the others, and her sire was destroyed, which freed her from the syndicate's control. Now Kate is ready to take Michael outside to show him the rest of the precinct. Welcome to the City, a tale of Metamore City, written in red by Chris Lester. Part 2 Kate led Michael to the garage, where at least a dozen skimmers and twenty swoops were parked and waiting. The detective lovingly caressed one of the swoops as they passed. You ride it all? she asked, patting the leather seat. Michael's lip twisted. Never learned how, he admitted. Mom always thought it was too dangerous. Kate chuckled. <laughs> Moms, you gotta love them. Leaving the swoop behind, she strode over to a nearby skimmer. Well, since the cap told me to go easy on you, and seeing as you don't have a helmet, we'll stick with a standard cruiser for today. They both climbed into the vehicle and fastened the restraints. Taking the control headset from where it rested on the dashboard, Kate put it on and powered up the skimmer. After a few seconds of warm-up time, Michael felt the cruiser rise up off the deck, and Kate eased them out of the garage and into the open sunlight, the headset transmitting her mental commands to the machine with perfect precision. The skyway was bustling with lunch hour traffic, and they waited close to a minute for a gap that would allow Kate to pull out. Looking out the side window, Michael could see the lamppost-shaped mana generators that held up the metal and concrete skyway, spaced at regular intervals along its length. More disconcertingly, he could also see the ground, over a hundred meters below them. Still not comfortable with it, eh? Kate asked. Michael swallowed back the lump in his throat and forced himself to look at the road directly in front of them. Not really. Something about building a city like a layer cake just bothers me. Yeah, I get that, Kate said. I came here from the burbs near Allentown, so this was pretty scary for me when I first showed up. I'm from Amberfield County, Michael said. Flatlands province. Kate winced. Ouch, talk about culture shock. I'll say. Well, hey, don't worry. You'll get the swing of things in no time, Kate assured him. Besides, the layer cake setup makes it easy to figure out what part of town you're in. You got four levels of skyways, right? Simple. Upper class, upper middle, middle middle, and lower middle. Then there's the street, which is your heavy industry, your warehouses, and all the folks who can't afford to live further up. Of course, the Citadel breaks all the rules, but you already knew that. Right. So you're telling me that the street is all bad news? There are no nice parts of town at ground level? Not except for the square, which is that big park that the Citadel sits in the middle of. There are some good shops and restaurants for maybe a block around there, but Peter's out pretty fast much beyond that. There are some other parks on street level that are pretty nice, but you wouldn't want to be there after dark. She smiled. That isn't to say there aren't nice people on the street, though. I know a lot of them just in my own apartment building. You live on the street? Eh, Sort of. The building has entrances on the street and the first level. She caught his expression and raised an eyebrow. Hey, you weren't expecting big bucks in this job, were you? Because I can tell you you'll be disappointed. Good point. Anyway, there are good guys and bad guys everywhere. You just have to learn to keep your eyes open so you can tell which is which. She smirked. And despite what you may have heard, horns and fluffy wings aren't dead giveaways. Michael chuckled. Gotcha. Good. Now let's grab some lunch and then take you for a spin around the neighborhood. On Kate's suggestion, they went to the square for lunch. After grabbing a couple of sandwiches from a local deli, they sat down in the shade of a willow tree at the southern end of the park, near the large white fountain with the statue of Thomas V on horseback that was one of the classic postcard images of the city. In the background rose the towering edifice of the citadel, which at a height of 1,500 meters reduced the skyscrapers around it to mere dwarfs. Michael let his eyes wander over the titanic structure the broad, sloping base, the central spire, tapering up to a summit shaped like the head of a cobra lily, and the two minarets to either side, their faceted domes glittering like two enormous diamonds. In the center of the hood at the top of the main spire was a huge elliptical half-dome of what looked like silvered glass, and it reflected the noonday sun in a dazzling contrast to the muted, light-gray stone that made up the rest of the building. She's really something, isn't she? Kate said, joining Michael in admiring the view. The only head of state you can see from orbit. Michael turned to look at her. Is that really true? About Majestrix Kaya being the Citadel, I mean. Kate shrugged. That's what they say. She looks human enough on TV, but she's been around for about as long as the Earth itself, so there's obviously something special about her and she can certainly make the Citadel do whatever she wants. That, she nodded toward the Citadel, used to be a mountain ridge with a little castle on top, according to the history books. Over time, though, the Citadel grew and changed until all of that was swallowed up. Wow. Michael was impressed, but at the moment he wasn't looking at the Citadel. It was a bright and sunny day, and unseasonably warm, and Kate had taken off her jacket to reveal a snug tank top underneath. Michael had thought she was attractive before, but now that he had a better view of her body, he was mentally revising that assessment up to beautiful. Her obvious muscle tone and trim waist spoke of an athletic woman who took excellent care of her body. And her chest? Well, he thought. She didn't have anything to be ashamed of. They say that more than a million people live and work inside that thing, Kate said turning to face him, and in the process giving him a better view of her bosom. She paused for a moment, then continued speaking, making some odd, elaborate gestures with one hand as she did so. Of course, nobody knows an exact number. There are so many apartments, businesses, and government agencies in there that the count would change before you finished your census. The good news is that the Majestrix controls where all the hallways and elevators go, so you never have to worry about finding where you want to go. That's convenient, Michael said, eyes still fixated on the rising and falling of her chest. Then, all of a sudden, his vision went blurry for a second. And there, staring back at him, were two large green eyes, one over each breast. The eyes blinked at him impassively. Ah! Michael screamed, falling backward off the bench to land on the plush green grass behind them. Michael? Michael? Kate asked, sounding concerned. Michael brushed the hair out of his eyes, looked up, and saw... nothing. Or, rather, the same ordinary Kate he'd been with all morning, eyes firmly ensconced in her face where they belonged. He stared carefully at her for a long moment, but the other set of eyes did not return. "'What's the matter, Michael?' Kate asked, furrowing her brow. "'You look like you just saw a ghost.' "'It's nothing.' Michael said at last, turning to cast a suspicious look at the remains of his sandwich. I just... It's nothing. Kate shrugged. Suit yourself. Michael took a drink from his water bottle and looked up at the citadel again, thinking. Can I ask you a question? Shoot? He thought about the best way to say what he was thinking, but there didn't seem to be a polite way around it, so he gave up and set it straight. Why do people still take the curse? Kate quirked an eyebrow at him. It just seems crazy, Michael said. You've got the ability to stop it, to control it. So why would anybody ever choose to let it change them? What person in their right mind wants to become an animal or a child or... or a hot and sexy member of the opposite gender? Kate said, grinning. Michael blushed, but he nodded. I just don't get it. It seems like you're just causing huge problems in your life for no good reason. no, people definitely have their reasons, whether they're good ones is a matter of personal opinion, of course. She turned to face him, her expression suddenly serious. Here's the thing, kid. For a couple hundred years after the curse settled on this place, people didn't get to choose whether they wanted it. They didn't get to choose how they changed either. It was all luck of the draw and whatever you got, you just had to learn to live with it. Now think about that for a minute. All of a sudden, you're stuck in this body you never asked for, you've suddenly got claws or fur or boobs or a dick, or you can wear your own kids' hand-me-downs, and you had no choice about it at all. What do you think people would do in that situation? Michael grimaced. Probably go crazy. Kate nodded. Here's the thing, though most of them didn't. Hells, most of them became heroes. The people who lived in this valley, who defended that castle, somehow became the greatest warriors the world had ever seen. They took their anger and their shame and their humiliation and turned it all into pure fire that tempered them like steel. These people overthrew tyrants, defied warlords, stopped invasion after invasion. The gods of heaven and the gods of shadow chose this spot to host an apocalypse, and it ended with both sides getting smacked down to earth by a sixteen-year-old girl from Metamore who is supposed to be their secret weapon. Michael's eyes widened. He'd heard of this before years ago when he was only a boy. You're talking about the prophet, the last messenger, of Eli, Saint Morai. Saint Morai. Kate agreed. Michael looked around at the square again, as if knowing it had been a sacred battleground would somehow make it all look different. I always figured that happened near Meryton. Common mistake, Kate said. Meryton may be the capital of the Marias Church, but it was born right here in Metamore. Michael let out a low whistle. Wow. Exactly. And that's just one of the big earth-shaking events that started here. Kate rose to her feet and spread out her hands, gesturing at the plaza around them. This place has a legacy of heroes, Michael, and most of them were cursed with bodies that they never asked for. The memory of that has sunken into this place and become part of the people who live here. So when those people look into the mirror and see a wolf or a horse or a badger or even a rat, they aren't just seeing an animal. They're seeing their heroes, Michael said. It's like a tribute. Exactly. Kate sat back down and shrugged. There are other reasons, too. Now that the Majestrix has tweaked the curse a bit, the Androgynes can actually shift all the way back and forth between male and female. That's actually made that version of the curse fairly popular. You won't be able to tell it by looking at them, but there are almost as many Androgynes in this city as there are plain vanilla humans. Michael blinked in surprise. Seriously? Oh, sure. Admit it, haven't you ever wondered how the other half lives? Androgynes get to live in both worlds. Sure, they can't spend more than half their time in their original gender, but they get used to it. Hells, a lot of them get the curse before they're out of diapers, so the double life is the only thing they've ever known. Michael stared at her. And that's legal? What right do the parents have to make that kind of decision for them? Kate shrugged again. If the parents are androgynes themselves, and they like it, why wouldn't they want their kids to grow up the same way? The younger you are when you get the change, the easier it is for you. If they waited until the kids were old enough to decide for themselves, the change would happen at the worst possible time for them to adjust to it. Trust me, they've done the studies on this stuff, and the ones who get changed early aren't the ones who complain. If you say so. Michael shook his head. I just don't get it. Hero worship is one thing, but messing with your kid's gender like that? Kate smirked at him. Just a different culture, Michael. Weird and extraordinary to you, maybe, but this is a weird and extraordinary place. Believe me, you'll get used to it after you get to know a few androgynes. She gestured at his sandwich. Come on, eat up. We gotta make sure we get you through the rest of the tour before I have to take you back to the captain. Now here's a side of Metamorph City you don't see in the tour books. Got that right, kid, Kate said soberly. This is where you'll do most of your legwork. Welcome to the street. The first thing that struck Michael about the street was how dark it was. With 500-meter skyscrapers hemming it in on all sides, and four layers of roads overhead, even in early afternoon, the ground level was wrapped in twilight and shadow. Street lamps helped illuminate the gloom, but they were sparse on most blocks, and not always working. Dirt, grime, and garbage were familiar decorative elements that were repeated often, accompanied by the smoke from the factories, and exhaust from the big transport trucks that clogged the streets. Here and there, trees grew up from little holes in the sidewalk, but most of them were small because of the dim light. Teenage kids played ball in the alleys and transit tunnels and weary-looking mothers dusted porches and tended little gardens in front of countless narrow townhouses and apartments, each of which was part of the base of a building that might rise hundreds of stories into the sky. Here and there, homeless people sat on the sidewalk, dressed in rags and old overcoats, accompanied by shopping carts piled high with garbage bags stuffed with their belongings. They look like they're just... surviving... Michael said, feeling subdued. This is supposed to be the promised land, the jewel of the North. But they come here and nothing changes. Or they come here, get on their feet for a while, and then something goes wrong and they end up where they started, Kate added. Or they lose everything to drugs or booze or magic addiction. Or they get dumped by deadbeat husbands and can't afford anything better. Then there are the ones who are born in places like this. Kids who never get a chance to climb their way out of here. She sighed. This is why we're here, Michael. This is why we do what we do. This is the monster we fight every day. If we can help make life a little better for these folks, if we can get rid of the bastards who are preying on them and using them, and just give them a fair shot to pull themselves out of this hell, then we've done our job. We've fought the good fight. When you say preying on them, You're not talking about vampires, right? Only partly. There are plenty of vamps feeding down here. Not to mention Incubi, Succubi, and other things that don't even have names. But they're just a small part of the problem. I'm talking about the drug dealers, the pimps, the gangbangers, and all the other lowlifes who make their living on other people's misery. It's non-stop war down here. The gangs mark their territories and get in turf wars with each other and a lot of innocent people get hurt in the process. They sell drugs and sex to desperate people, and steal from the helpless to pay for their weapons and gents, and then they start the actual fighting, and kids and mothers get caught in the crossfire. Eli, help me. I'd wipe them all out if I could. Gents? Michael asked. Yeah, reagents. Ingredients for spells and magic items. You know, Eye of Newt, Thrice Bliss Sage, all that stuff. Oh. Do the gangs use a lot of magic? A lot of them do. Some gangs are made of all rogue mages. Folks who got their leashes removed without getting licensed or joining a guild. I assume you know what a leash is, right? Yeah, restraining band to suppress magical talents. Back home, all the kids get tested early for magery, and the ones with power have bands fitted until they join a guild. Not that everybody does. It's the same here. Some people get rejected by the guilds because they're too unstable, or can't afford classes, or they have attitude problems, or whatever. And some of those rejects run off, join gangs and get their leashes removed, and then learn to do magic the ganger way, quick and dirty. They're a danger to themselves and others, and we bring them in when we can. But there are way too many to catch them all. Sounds like we have our work cut out for us. Kate scoffed. Hell yeah. I haven't even told you about the spookies yet. Spookies? You mean like ghosts and monsters? Nah, I told you about them already. I'm talking about size. Mages call them spookies because they don't need to use gents or words or gestures to use their powers. You can handcuff a mage and duct tape his mouth shut and he's basically powerless. But all the spooky needs is his brain. If he's awake, he can hurt you. Yikes. Are they evil? No more than anybody else. They're a good size and bad ones, just like anything. Plus, the size have this really tight community that stretches all over town, maybe all over the Empire. They look after each other, take care of their own. They also deal with their own garbage, and a spooky as starts hurting innocent people will be hunted down by his own kind. But they can do a hell of a lot of damage before they're caught. They're the ones you really gotta watch out for. Thanks for the tip. I... Hey, what are they doing? Michael's train of thought was interrupted as he spotted a group of four swoops parked in front of an alley, just on the opposite side of the intersection they were sitting at. The swoopies themselves had dismounted and were standing in a semicircle around a haggard, frightened-looking man with his back to the wall. They had their hands in the pockets of their black leather jackets, but the look on their faces spoke volumes. "'Looks like they want him to pay up,' Kate said, taking off the headset and handing it to Michael. "'Here, you drive. I'll take care of this.' Obediently, Michael put on the headset while Kate took out her gun. As soon as the set was in place, a heads-up display appeared before his eyes, along with a ball-shaped icon that he could mentally twist and turn to indicate which way the skimmer should move." The cruiser was larger than most skimmers and ground cars he'd driven over the years, but the interface was the same. "'Hop us over this truck and come down behind that parked skimmer,' Kate said, pointing at a vehicle that sat by the curb right next to the alley. "'No problem,' Michael said, turning on the siren and urging the police cruiser higher into the air. He quickly darted over the truck that was waiting at the stoplight, flew over the cross-traffic at the intersection, and pulled up in front of the alley, spinning the skimmer 90 degrees in the process, so they were facing the swoopies head-on. As soon as they were in position, Kate opened her door and leapt out, going into a crouch behind the parked skimmer. Peeking up over the hood of the vehicle, she trained her gun on the nearest ganger. Freeze! Police! she shouted. Rather than freeze, the swoopies turned as one and trained their own guns on Kate. One of them apparently the leader, had a submachine gun. Care to take your chances, copper? He sneered. Damn, Kate muttered, pulling back one of her hands, but keeping the gun pointed at the thugs with her other. Michael debated using the cruiser as a weapon, but the alley looked too narrow, and he was pretty sure that the skimmer wouldn't stand up to that SMG. Then he noticed that Kate was doing something with her free hand. She reached into a small pouch on her belt, pulled out something powdery, and rubbed it between her fingers. She made a few quick but complicated gestures and muttered something under her breath. And then the air was filled with the sound of approaching sirens. In seconds, two more cruisers and a SWAT assault gunboat flew down from the skyways above and parked themselves in front of the alley. The gunboat trained its machine gun turrets on the swoopies, and an angry voice came over the loudspeaker. "'Drop your weapons!' They did, and then fell over each other scrambling onto their swoops and darted off in all directions. While Michael parked the cruiser and got out, Kate retrieved the dropped guns and then offered a hand to the haggard man who was lying on the ground with his hands clasped over his head. "'You okay?' she asked. "'Yeah. Thanks, lady.' he said, upon realizing that he was not about to be riddled with bullets. He took her hand and rose to his feet. Thanks. I owe you big time. What did those guys want? she asked. Well, I... Last month they loaned me some money, see? Just to get me through till payday, the man said, his pale blue eyes wide and brimming with tears. But then I got fired and... I didn't have nothing to pay them back with, and they said... Oh, God, they said (gasps) they... Shh. It's all right, Kate soothed, putting her hand on his shoulder. We're just going to take you back to base, ask you a few questions, and then I know a good shelter clear on the other side of town, way off their turf. They'll help you get back on your feet, find a job, get your life back. Nobody will hurt you there. Sound good? "'Yeah, yeah,' the man could say no more as his words melted into incoherent sobbing. Kate held him close for a long moment, patting him on the back, whispering repeatedly, "'It's okay. You're gonna make it.' Finally, when the man had recovered his composure, they brought him back to their cruiser and put him in the back seat. "'That was a heck of a break,' Michael said, gesturing up at the other police skimmers that still floated patiently above the street. I can't believe all these other cops were so close. What other cops? Kate asked, waving her hand in a small half-circle. The other... Michael looked up, but the two police cruisers and the SWAT gunboat had vanished. He looked back down at Kate and raised his eyebrows. Let me guess. Illusionist, right? Kate just grinned and held out her hand. Give me the headset, rookie. Let's head back to base. Filing the incident reports took quite a bit longer than the incident itself. For close to 30 minutes, a uniformed cop bombarded the two detectives and the homeless man with questions about the swoopy's identities, appearance, and behavior, hoping to glean some information about what gang they were with and how they might have gotten their hands on a submachine gun. The poor fellow wasn't much help. He was still pretty rattled from the assault, but Michael could tell he was doing his best to help out. Kate held his hand through the whole procedure and then escorted him back to the skimmer for the trip to the shelter. Michael went with them as far as the garage. "'You'd better stay here, kid,' Kate said." as she opened the door of the cruiser for the man. Your dinner with the cap is coming up soon here. That's the last free meal you'll get around here for a while, so you don't want to miss it. I won't, Michael said, smiling. Thanks for the tour. And hey, nice moves out there today. Thanks. You didn't do too bad yourself for a rookie. Kate grinned. Now, if we can just get you to remember that a girl's eyes are on her face, you'll fit right in around here. Michael felt his face turn beet red. I'll remember, he said, sheepishly. Right on. Kate got into the cruiser, buckled up, and put on the headset. The skimmer rose into the air, then turned and slid sideways, until Kate's open window was in front of him. Oh, and Michael? Yeah. Kate pointed a finger at him. You got something on your face. As the cruiser drove off, Michael reached up and wiped his mouth and cheeks, but he didn't see anything come off on his hand. Going back inside to the men's restroom, he looked in the mirror, and there, emblazoned across his forehead in bold, black, inverted letters, was the word ROOKIE. Michael grinned and walked out of the restroom, heading for Montgomery's office. He wasn't sure how long Kate's glamour would last, but as long as it did, he would wear it like a badge of honor. In her own twisted fashion, Kate was recognizing him, acknowledging him as one of their own. And practical jokes aside, he knew he'd made a friend today. Now he could start figuring out how to get back at her with a joke of his own. Maybe the captain would have a few ideas. And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. You can get the text version of Welcome to the City in the Urban Legends Story Collection, which is on sale now at Amazon. The link will be in the show notes. Nora Roberts said, You can fix anything but a blank page. So, let's see how I've been doing with filling up those pages. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3346 words this week over the course of 4.75 hours for an average writing speed of 704 words per hour. I wrote on 5 out of 7 days this week. I've started getting up to speed again on The Lost and the Least. I'm entering the climax, so I'm thinking seriously about how to up the tension and the stakes for each of my viewpoint characters. This is going to require some departures from my outline, because I realized that what I originally planned just wasn't punchy enough. That's why it felt like the story was dragging, as I mentioned in last week's episode. So now I'm focused on making things as difficult for my heroes as possible, so their final victory will be all the sweeter. I've now completed Chapter 53, and the manuscript is at 173,000 words. And now, the feedback. Lisa Hawkridge asked this on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook page. If an incubus has sex with one of the other sentient species, like an elf or a luton, what kind of child will they have? Can they have children? I feel like it's possible, since their sperm is so potent. What do you guys think? Hi, Lisa. Yes, incubi can reproduce with other species, not just humans. In that case, the Incubus would probably take on a form that resembled that other species, rather than one that looked like a human. Remember, they're very versatile shapeshifters. Regardless of who their partner is, though, the child would look like a normal member of that species until they reached maturity and absorbed enough sexual energy to complete their metamorphosis. After that, they'd be another Incubus or Succubus, just like their father. Now, in the stories, we've never seen an incubus or a succubus who was born to a mortal non-human species, like an elf or a Luton. However, Ms. Fallon and her assistant Sylvia were both born and raised in the Dreamlands. That means that their second parent was some kind of Dreamlands inhabitant, probably one of the she. Now, since the she don't have souls, this raises an interesting question of why these succubi do have souls since the Lightbringers usually say that Incubi and Succubi get their souls from their mortal parent. Maybe it's because the first Succubi came from Suspira mating with mortals, and so that entire lineage is partly mortal, even on their Daedric side. It just goes to show that soul lore is a lot more complicated than even the Lightbringers realize, and that the line between people and monsters isn't so easy to draw. Thanks for raising the question, if you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension two five five zero eight two, 82 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be on vacation next weekend, so I'll be sharing one of the panels I was on at Balticon. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 1999 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.